0: How are you doing? You. Good to see you all today. Big crowds. sunny day. Right, so I'm gonna be talking for about an hour on basically how the West became self-obsessed. And I'm gonna be talking in kind of three different sections. Um, first, we're gonna start talking about the kind of the deep roots of our kind of human self, where it all came from. Then we're gonna be sort of moving forward to talk about kind of specifically how culture works, like how culture kind of interacts with that kind of deep universal self. <laughs> And then I'm going to be talking a bit about kind of the very modern age, the kind of late 20th and uh, 21st century to really kind of talk about how we've ended up in the place which we are at now. Right, so let's begin by talking about um, kind of the human self in its kind of more universal kind of form really. So human beings are are, are an ape, like obviously we're not like an ape, we are an actual ape. But we're a weird, odd kind of ape in that um, we're highly social. So, you know, the reason that we've managed to kind of take over the world and kind of outperform all the other apes quite spectacularly is that we're unbelievably good at working together. So all all living things, you know, want to pursue their Darwinian aims, survival and reproduction, and all living things have um, their own particular unique strategy for doing that thing. Um, And our um, uh, unique strategy is is essentially to kind of join groups and uh, join cooperative grou- groups and then compete with other cooperative groups and that's what we do so for more than, um, more than, more than 95% some psychologists say more than 99% of our time on earth we've not been um, living in uh, you know, towns and cities and villages we've been living in hunter gatherer tribes um, uh, these co- cooperative groups um, kind of roaming around the territory foraging hunting and occasionally sometimes attacking and being attacked by other kind of human groups. Um, so that's our kind of basic, kind of universal self, we're tribal, um, you know, we think in groups, uh, uh, and that's, that, 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 that's kind of all of us and it's kind of our original sin really, you know, religious people talk about the, the idea of original sin, and I think it's kind of true in the sense that, that, that we can't not think in groups. Um, if you, I think of it a bit like a, um, a cake mixer, if you throw eggs into a cake mixer and turn the cake mixer on, it's going to do something to those eggs. And it's the same with the human self. If you turn a, turn a human brain on and chuck reality into it, it's going to do something to that reality. And that's experience itself as a member of a group or groups um, and kind of feel kind of competitive with um, other groups. And that's kind of thought to be the basis of the kind of universal human morality. So um, but fundamentally, kind of what, what, what's at the core of all our, all our kind of moral rules around the world is the idea of selflessness. So we celebrate selflessness and our sto- the stories that we tell um, the, the heroes are usually selfless in some way and the villains are usually selfish in some way. And, th- and the reason for that is again is that we're tribal, we wanted to encourage selfless behavior. People that, um, people b- that put their own interests uh, before that of their tribe would, be, would get a bad reputation, they'd be punished and we'd tell gossipy stories about them, we'd feel moral outrage Um, uh, and um, they're the villains. So if you think about villains in storytelling, they're often selfish. They're often kind of acting on their own selfish um, desires at the expense of everybody else. And, and, you know, you flip that over and and heroes are often selfless. They're kind of selflessly courageous or they sacrifice themselves or something. They kind of put their own interests to one side on behalf of the group. Um, So so that kind of selfish selfless is one of those kind of human universals is the basis of all... Kind of human cultures is is that kind of access. The, the other the other kind of big inheritance of our tribal self is the idea that we're all obsessed with status. Um, so you know, lots of animals, of course, uh, um, uh, are, are interested in status, and lots of animals um, are always kind of hustling to increase their own sense of relative status because with status um, comes lots of things that um, I- enable us to um, achieve our Darwinian aims even better. So that, so in human groups. The more status you get, the higher you climb on that little status ladder, the better your access to kind of better mates, kind of higher value mates, uh, the, the, the better your access to safe sleeping sites, the better your access to better food. Uh, so so kind of that, that idea of status is this kind of heuristic, it's this kind of golden key that we know subconsciously, that if you get more status, everything gets better. You know? so, so we're all kind of hustling for kind of status and um, uh, humans have this kind of amazing second way of getting status so lots of animals compete for status, relative status with dominance so they just fight basically or uh, the the older uh, member of the group gets more status but humans have, have, have invented this whole new way of getting status and it's with prestige so it's an amazing kind of invention prestige uh, it's kind of um, a uh, kind of human thing where where, where we c- we can gain status by being impressive by being more moral by in, in kind of inventing things by doing 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 things that are useful so we so 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 we we're all you know that, that that's a big part of human life is that is that kind of hustle for, for 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 status and we kind of flip often you know it's sometimes in the blink of an eye between getting status with dominance being a kind of aggressive and being kind of um, kind of morally judgmental and trying to kind of force our ideas on other people and then it, it, uh, if, as, as far as I'm concerned when humans are being at their best you know we're competing with prestige by being you know inventing new things coming up with new ideas um, you know and being kind of better people so that's the kind of the basis kind of I- basic idea of, uh, of who we are as kind of human beings that's the kind of the, 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 you know, the, the kind of stuff that's in there when we're born um, so when we're born uh, as humans, we have brains that are, um, some, are sometimes known as experience expectant. So they're kind of half-formed brains um, that they have these kind of basic understandings about how the world works, kind of baked into them. Status, um, uh, uh, connection with tribes, all that stuff. Um, um, uh, 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 and then we have these extremely extended childhoods. So we're not like giraffes that can just sort of get born and and and, and you know stagger away and be kind of roughly. Um, uh, okay without their parents, you know, it takes a long time for a human being to, 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 to be independent and um, neuroscientists, they keep putting back the age at which the human brain is finally stopped kind of de- developing in that way, and it's currently at the mid-twenties, so it's quite extraordinary how long that takes and, and kind of what's happening there is that we're learning the rules of our local culture, we're learning the, the rules of our tribe essentially, so it, when humans are born, their brains are basically asking one really important question, and that question is, who do I have to be in this particular place in order to achieve my Darwinian aims of getting along and getting ahead? And what kind of person do I have to be? What are the rules of this culture? Uh, and of course, if we, look, you know, if we look back in human history, the rules of culture um, you know, just are constantly in flux. They're constantly changing, not only geographically, but in time. You know, we look back in uh, for, for kind of the moral rules of British culture 100 years ago, we find many of them abhorrent. Um, uh, uh, but of course, if you were a, you know, a human being in those in, in that area, it would have felt perfectly natural. It would have felt it was kind of obvious to you, as, as obvious as our moral um, understandings and moral truths um, seem to us today. So uh, that, that, that idea is sometimes known as dual inheritance. We, you know human beings have this dual inheritance. We, we're kind of run by these two separate sets of instructions. One's genetic. You know, it's baked into our genes, those kind of tribal those tribal ideas about, uh, about how we ought to behave as, uh, as people. And then on top of that, there's culture. You know, we, ha- we, we, have these, we humans have these amazingly complex cultures uh, um, uh, which are kind of full of, uh, kind of a separate set of rules which tell us who we have to be or what kind of things we have to believe, how we should dress, the kind of jobs we should have, all of that stuff. So that's culture. And so, of course, if we're wanting to kind of understand um, how, uh, how and why the West is... Particularly self-obsessed at the moment. We need to look at kind of the history of Western culture, and um, the big, uh, the the, the big change for us um, is thought to be, of course, in ancient Greece. Um, uh, Lots of the ideas about individualism kind of stem from from ancient Greece. There's a the historian professor um, Werner Werner Jaeger says there uh, says says that what happened um, in ancient Greece, the idea that kind of uh, that came out of that area. Was uh, the beginning of a new conception of the value of the individual—that each soul is in itself an end of infinite value. So that idea of individualism, and it's quite an amazing idea, because as I said, you know, for, for eons, for so, for such a long time, for all of human history, we, we just we'd experience ourselves as members of groups, and it's groups. It's I'm, I'm a member of this group, and it's groups against groups. But this idea that actually the, the locus of interest, the locus of um, change, the locus of Um, uh, 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 of importance should be the individual is quite a radical idea Um, uh, and so of course um, psychologists are are, are very interested in kind of the roots of that idea, um, the kind of how how did it happen and kind of what does it it actually mean? So um, some of these psychologists (coughs) call this kind of whole kind of uh, nexus of ideas the, the geography of thought, this idea of how we experience ourselves as a cultural animal comes out of the literal kind of geography, the kind of uh, the landscape uh, uh, of the people we were uh, some time ago and so um, you, when you look at kind of ancient Greece, ancient Greece is well it's like it is now, it's not like an island as you'd imagine it uh, I'm sorry, it's not like a, a country as you'd imagine a country to be now, it's not like a land you know like a, a, a coherent land mass it's, it's a kind of a weird kind of desiccated, a- atomized kind of landscape, lots of little islands Lots of kind of isolated communities at the sort of foot of rocky mountains. Uh, not a lot of room for agriculture in ancient Greece. Um, anybody who's been to Greece on holiday, it's, it's obviously it's the same now as it was then. You're not going to do m- m- much kind of rice growing or wheat growing or uh, livestock rearing in, I- in Greece. Uh, so um, uh, it, it was made up of about a thousand individual city-states. There's kind of a thousand different kind of places that you could, you could go to. And one, one of the kind of ramifications of that is that... Um, it already kind of encourages this kind of freedom when people upset other people in ancient Greece that they, 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 they could just escape to another city-state and, and kind of begin again uh, but, but the more important idea that comes out of that is, is, is how we um, how in ancient Greece you would have had to have behaved in order to fulfill those two Darwinian aims so if you were born in ancient Greece who do I have to be in this place in order to get along with other people In my tribe and get ahead to kind of win that status battle and in ancient Greece because of of its landscape because you couldn't do much farming there um, uh, you had to be a kind of a hustler you had to kind of be uh, you know um, uh, kind of tend the six olive trees in your your back lot or uh, make olive oil or lots of them a fisherman would go out um, 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 and and fish um, or kind of tan hides or write poetry or uh, trade with other city-states um, so, so it's kind of a hustling kind of, the, the landscape forced people to be these kind of hustlers, to kind of have these kind of little units of um, industry that would that, 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 that would kind of get along like that, um, and of course th- this, this kind of, this generates an ideal of self, you know, that, this generates a kind of culture in which that kind of idea of the individualistic hustler is worshipped and idealised, and then so we see um, uh, you know, lots of interesting cultural ideas that we can still see that are ubiquitous across the West now, uh, emerging in ancient Greece. So they'd have statues of idealised male and female forms uh, so, who, who, you know, wouldn't look out of place on the front of magazines today. One, one, of the, one of the kind of particularly odd things that I found when I was doing my research was that... Um, one of the things that you see on idealised masculine forms in ancient Greece is this thing called the pelvic V-line, which, if you've seen Love Island, you know what that is. Um, it's that thing there, and, um, and they're very hard to get in real life. It's very tough to get a pelvic V-line. I've never had one. Um, uh, but, uh, and if you, use, you know, take an ancient Greek statue of a, of, a, of a of a sexy man. Uh, he could be on men's health today if he wasn't made of stone, you know, they, they look exactly the same, these ideas. So that's one of the kind of things that comes out of ancient Greece. Then there's another idea which has got a quite toxic idea, they called it kalokagathia. And kalokagathia is, kind of means roughly beautiful and good. And that's the idea that you, you can make a, a moral judgment about some, how good somebody's inside by looking at how they were physically. If they're attractive, they're a good person. and If they're ugly, they're a bad person. So a really terrible idea, <laughs> really awful, but one that's still ubiquitous in the West today. Um, and, you know, obviously we have the Olympics. We have, you know, th- this amazing um, um, battle of self against self. Um, debating becomes a, a popular pastime in ancient Greece. For 50 years, they had democracy in Athens, which is just extraordinary when you think this was 2,500 uh, two years ago. You know, this was like... Game of Thrones world, and they had actually had they experimented with democracy in in, in, a, in a kind of early form. Of course, it was only rich men that were able to vote, but that that, that, that was what was going on there. Um, so, so 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 that's that. I mean, it was ancient Greeks, of course, that came up with a, had to come up with the the story of Narcissus, this this individual who was who who saw his reflection in a pool of water. And fell in love with him. He was so handsome he fell in love with himself. And when he when he found that that it was when he realized it was only a reflection and he couldn't marry himself, he kind of dies of depression. So so that you know the warning about self-love comes out of ancient Greece. Aristotle had this idea that um, he said that um, you know things have unique properties that can be defined and categorized and act predictably according to certain laws. So he said an apple that falls to the ground does so under the force of gravity, which was a great idea, but he also thought that um, an apple floats on the sea under the power of levity, which, of course, was a less good idea. But you can see these, these you know, they're these kind, of the, the kind of groping towards what we'd understand uh, science, the scientific process to be now. They're kind of understanding that individual things have individual kind of properties that you can measure and you can judge the individual thing uh, 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 under these kind of um, measurements. Um, Aristotle also believed that everything in nature was on this natural path towards perfection. And, that, uh, and everything in nature, of course, includes human beings. And human beings are also on a on a natural path towards perfection, he, and he believed that um, uh, lots of ancient people in ancient Greece believed that education was the way that people should, um, um, uh, you know, b- be on this path of self-improvement and be on the on the way to kind of perfecting themselves. And Aristotle believed that that that, that you should, um, in, in order to kind of actualise your natural path towards perfection, you had to kind of conduct yourself in. Um, a state of ennobled self-love, which was, it was a very interesting idea, that you should love yourself, and of course that becomes an extremely important idea in the modern West. So it's kind of the self-esteem movement in a very kind of early, uh, early form. Um, uh, so, so, so that's kind of ancient Greece, and you can, see, you, you can see so much of modern Western culture in those ideas in ancient Greece. That you know, the, 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 it's that celebrity culture, the, the adoration of the individual, the kind of the, you know the slippage into narcissism that was that, that was sometimes seen. This idea of in, in kind of natural progress that things are on their natural path towards um, progress. And you know, and if you have been raised in the West, um, and, and if you haven't, you might you might you might sort of hear all these things and go, well, that's not a Western thing. That's just that's just how it is to be, that's just obvious, all this stuff is self-evident, this isn't a particularly interesting cultural idea. Um, and that's why um, psychologists are particularly interested in comparing um, ancient Greek ideas with what was going on at the, in roughly the same time in China, in East Asia, because East Asia, China um, specifically was you know completely the opposite landscape to um, ancient Greece. It's a big landlocked country uh, and it's not um, you know, one of the things about ancient Greece was it's very hard for a tyrant to take over ancient Greece because it's all these little individual city-states, and they're all separated by mountains and cliffs and um, uh, um, c- c- uh, waterways, and so so it's very hard. So tyrants can sort of really t- very difficult to take over all of ancient Greece. But China, uh, it was it was it was it was very it was much easier for kind of ty- tyrannical figures to kind of dominate uh, that landscape. And in order to kind of get along and get ahead in China. Uh, the landscape encouraged kind of collective behavior. So, so, uh, uh, whilst in ancient Greece at the time, everybody was, you know, these little, uh, uh, being kind of industrious kind of hustlers with their little small industries. In China, um, you you were likely to either be a wheat grower, which is a very, you know, group-intensive activity, a rice grower, which is an even more group-intensive activity, or they had these incredible um, irrigation projects that were being built at the time. You'd be working on that, which, again, is another... um, extremely group-intensive pastime, so um, uh, that means that if you're born in China two and a half thousand years ago and your brain is asking that that kind of eternal question, who do I have to be in this place in order to get along and get ahead, you get a very different answer, and that's I've got to be somebody that completely privileges the group. I've got to keep my head down, because if the group is successful, I'm successful, but if I'm kind of pushy and I kind of elevate myself above the group, then he's um, it, going to create discord and the group's going to fall to pieces and that's terrible. So that's the ideal of self that becomes raised up in um, ancient China. So um, and at the time as you've got Aristotle kind of walking around ancient Greece talking about we should conduct ourselves in a state of ennobled self-love, um, uh, at roughly the same time you had this amazing guy Confucius um, uh, walking around China um, uh, who has a completely different conception of what the kind of idealised person, how they should behave, he said, um, the superior individual has nothing to compete for, but if he must compete, um, he does it in an archery match, wherein he ascends to his position, bearing in deference. He does not boast of himself, preferring instead the concealment of his virtue, which he, culti- he cult- which he cultivates in a friendly harmony and lets the states of equilibrium and harmony exist in perfection. So completely different kind of conception of self back in um, 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 China. Um, one of the things that was, I found extraordinary while I was doing my research was, was, was this, um, um, uh, th- th- this book which said that, that, there, that there were no, you know, this idea of sort of me, me, me being the centre of the universe was so alien to ancient Chinese ideals, that ideas of reality that there was no autobiography in China for like two millennia. And when there was, you know, so the idea to, to, uh, to a Westerner of, a, of an impressive, famous person writing a book about them and telling their story just seems obvious. Like, of course they want to do that. But, 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 but it wasn't um, to, 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 the, to, to the ancient Chinese. And when, it, when, when books like that, do, stories like that do start appearing, the, 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 the person who the story is about isn't at the center of the story at all. They're kind of on the periphery looking in um, uh, as if they're kind of accidental spectators upon their own life so really extraordinary kind of differences in kind of culture emerge out of these um, changes and the really extraordinary stuff is that, science is, is that psychologists who get people in the laboratory and, and, and do various tests on how they experience reality it, even today it kind of reflects these ancient differences which appear to come out of the landscape so a lot of these um, tests for some reason involve animations of fish tanks which sounds like a mad thing but go with me on this, so what they do is um, so, uh, you might know this already, but, but if you don't... So, so, so the way that we kind of experience reality is that our eyes are in constant motion. We have this tiny little speck at the centre of our eyes, which is kind of full colour and high definition, and it darts about the environment um, very rapidly, building up our impression of the world. So these are called saccades. So the fastest movement in the human body, and we do four to five saccades um, every second. So we do about... that's about a quarter of a million... Um, every day. So, so, so we're always kind of circading. And what um, uh, psychologists, neuroscientists do is they, they can put these special spectacles on you which measure and record the movement of your circades. They can see, they can see how, what your brain's decided to focus on and how it's building up its model of the world. And so in one of these sort of very iconic experiments there's an animation of a fish tank and in the middle of the fish tank there's this sort of show off flashy orange fish dominating the kind of scene. Um, and there's all the other fish are kind of you know, dotted around it and they find that the westerner is much more likely to focus on that individualistic flashy show off fish at the front whereas the East Asian person is much more likely to look at the fish and then look at everything else in context and, 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 and so when you take them out of the laboratory and you say to them what did you see uh, the westerner is much more likely to say I saw a fish and the East Asian person is much more likely to say well I saw a fish tank and there's a bunch of fish in there and there was a big fish at the front, and then you say to them, so well, tell me about that fish at the front, what do you think about that fish at the front? And the Westerner is more likely to go, well that fish was the leader, that was the boss man, I like that fish. And the East Asian person is more likely to go, well I felt sorry for that fish because they're obviously being pushed out of the group, and they're obviously a bit lonely and something's gone wrong for that fish. <laughs> so, so, so you can see how out of these very, sort of, very fundamental differences in how we understand the world, differences in values that are really important to emerge out of these things and so we begin to experience a very different moral reality as susan kane famously kind of talked about in her book um, quiet in, in, in east asia shyness is seen as a leadership quality whereas in, in the west shyness is seen as a, like a deficit almost in the kind of corporate kind of playground environment um, uh, richard nisbitt the very famous psychologist who kind of pioneered all this stuff you know you know, he said to me when i interviewed him he said um You've only got to see the average street scene in, you know, you go to Mongkok or you know in, in Hong Kong or you go to Tokyo, the, 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 because East Asian people are far more aware of things, the context, and, and you know the, the idea of reality is this kind of constellation of elements rather than you know, simple individual kind of blocks that the East Asian. Um, street scenes are, 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 you know, sometimes feel chaotic to the average Westerner. You, you, it's like you get this massive endorphin rush. It's like, oh, my God. So, 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 so different environments are kind of built out of this. Um, uh, one of the studies has looked at the ways that um, crimes are reported in East Asia versus the West. And one of the, one of the studies looked at how um, some uh, spree killings were reported. And in the Western... Um, The Western individualistic newspapers are far more likely to pin the blame for the spree killing on the individual. This is a bad person, they were evil, they were nasty. Terrible, 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 evil, nasty person. Whereas in the Chinese newspapers are far more likely to talk about the context. Well, they just lost their job and they had an argument with their boss. So they're far more... Um, aware of the kind of contextual situations of things. So, so, so really interesting stuff and, uh, and amazing uh, uh, how these different value systems seem, to, seem really do seem to have emerged out of the, the, the ways we were having to get along and get ahead two and a half um, thousand years ago. Um, so that's that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of brush over the middle, the, the, a few thousand years because I've only got an hour, <laughs> I've only got half an hour left. Um, but just to say... That what happens, in, what happens in the West after the fall of the ancient world is that we go into, you know, really the Dark Ages. Christianity sweeps in. Um, uh, fe- uh, in, in, in Britain, we're, in the, in the Britain we're feudal. Ten percent of the population are slaves uh, or, or serfs who are effectively slaves. Not good, bad. Um, and, and this idea comes in um, from, from the Middle East um, that we have original sin that humans are bad, We've, we, you know, we, we are awful, terrible people, and, uh, and, and it fits perfectly with how we had to get along and get ahead in the Middle Ages. You know, it was, it was feudal. You know, we, we had to be completely subservient to the lord of the manor, who, 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 who our survival depended on, and the lord of the manor is kind of you know, externalised into, into this kind of domineering lord god who we also had to um, kind of bow and... Um, be um, subservient to, and, and as part of my research, I went to stay in a monastery in Scotland, uh, where they, a Benedictine mon- monastery, where they're still living effectively, as if they were sort of, like 800 years ago. And um, you know, they were singing all these psalms in Latin, and I was looking at the translations, and it was things like, I am but a, but a worm, you know, really like, oh, they just hated themselves, they were just terrible. And the idea was, you know, you, you, God had decided your fate. You're a man, you're a woman, you're a peasant, whatever. It's bad to have any ambition beyond those limitations. A good, morally good person knows their place and stays within it. And that was life for a very, very long time. Um, Traditional kind of histories of, uh, 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 of the world and of the West often see the birth of psychology as the break with this and and talk about Freud a lot but to my estimation that's a kind of that that, that if we're talking about self-obsession specifically um, Freud really was just a continuation of the Christians he also believed in original sin but he believed that we were all these perverts who wanted to kind of sleep with our mums and murder our dads and we had penis envy and womb envy so he still thought ultimately the humans were bad we were terrible and in order to kind of cure humans you know we had to kind of Um, uh, uh, kind of cure ourselves with psychotherapy. The real break comes in America, you know, this great new land, this kind of new version of ancient Greece, whereas ancient Greece was a thousand individual city-states, America is fifty, you know, states who are all kind of essentially independent although, you know, combined with a kind of a overall kind of government and in the kind of post-war years, um, a new idea emerges, a revolutionary radical idea Um, which was called the Human Potential Movement. And the idea is that all those Christians, Freud and all those guys, were just wrong. Humans aren't terrible. Humans are amazing. They're fantastic. They're wonderful. And the only reason they're not fantastic and wonderful is because they're kind of bossed about and ruined and polluted by culture and society. Um, They're made to feel guilty. They're made to feel um, uh, kind of reined in. Um, and it's from this, it's from this kind of nexus ideas that that ideas that are still very dominant today emerge. So one of the ideas that is very dominant today is about the idea of authenticity, that we should be authentic, and if we're and because the because the individual is perfect, if we're authentically us, that's fine. So if anybody here, probably no one's going to admit to ever watching Big Brother or all these reality shows. But if you do, what what you'll see very often is is people behave appallingly to each other. They bully each other, they're rude, they're obnoxious. And when they're pulled up on it, the the answer usually comes, well, I'm just being me. It's just me. You should just accept me. And that's a human potential idea. That's the idea that we're all amazing underneath it all. And uh, as long as we're being authentic, we're being morally kind of correct. So one of the sort main progenitors of this idea was a guy called Carl Rogers, and it really is a kind of a rebirth of those ancient Greek ideas about self-love. That in order that we're all on this journey towards individual perfection, and in order to achieve it, we just have to love ourselves. And this this is kind of kind of a niche idea throughout the kind of hippie years. Um, uh, it's kind of a it, it, kind of a, a niche idea in psychology. It, 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 it's um, very kind of Californian. There's a place uh, that you might have heard of in on the west coast called the Esalen Institute, which was the, which was a kind of the kind of intellectual kind of cauldron of the hippie generation. Um, yeah. uh, 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 and a lot of these ideas. Um, it's where Don Draper ended up at the end of Mad Men. If, you, if there's any Mad Men, fan, Mad Men fans here. Um, and so that's where all the, uh, these are all, all, uh, ideas are all kind of bubbling away. Um, and, and, they, uh, and they kind of stay a bit niche and a bit kind of esoteric until the 1980s. And the 1980s is, is, uh, are when these ideas become mainstream. And in order to kind of realize why, you just have to think about what was going on in ancient Greece and China two and a half thousand years ago. So, so the idea there is that, is, is that, again, the brain's asking that fundamental question who do I have to be in this place in order to get along and get ahead? So two and a half thousand years ago, that question was defined by our physical environment, because we were living off the land. We were controlled by the land. And of course, in the 1980s, in this kind of post-industrial revolution, post um, um, kind of scientific age, or you know scientific age, we're not tethered to the land anymore. So the big controlling force that kind of defines who we are becomes the economy. It's the rules of the economy that define. Who we have to be and how we have to behave in order to get along and get ahead. So before the 1970s um, is, is a surprisingly kind of collectivist era in, in, Western, uh, in, in, in Western life. And this was a, another surprise to me uh, when I was doing my research. And it, and it seems to be that the, kind of the big disasters in the early part of the 20th century knocked us into being a bit more collective. They kind of knocked some sense into us. Um, so, you know, the, the, the Great Depression, um, the Second World War, Um, um, They they kind of knocked us into these kind of very collective ideas like um, in America the great road building projects, um, lots of regulations on banking and building an industry um, things like the GI Bill, which was an enormously kind of um, um, uh, fantastic, kind of socialist, really idea, that, that anybody that served um, in the military gets a free college education, did a kind of enormous amount of good. Um, and of course, over here in the UK, we had the welfare state after the Second World War, pensions, NHS, all that good stuff. Um, and again, w- and what comes out of these kind of collective ideas in the US and in the UK is a collective sense of is collective self. So uh, in the early post-war years, it was the kind of the year of corporation man and woman, um, the, the rise of the suburbs. Um, everybody kind of, um, the kind of great fear at the time was that we were all becoming kind of identical humans. And the corporation man and woman had children, and those children were even more collectivist. They were hippies. They were completely anti-materialistic, anti-corporate, anti-the man. They didn't want to own things. They just wanted all to be equal, and they wanted to sit around um, smoking pot and having a good time. And why not? Um, And then, of course, the the 70s happens and everything starts going wrong. The economy starts falling to pieces. Um, Economists still argue um, as to why that happened, but that's not really important to us right now. What's important is that the the, 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 the politicians of the 70s and 80s had to come up with a new idea, a new idea, a new way to run our economy, a new way to kind of um, run the economies of the West. And the idea they fell upon, old Thatcher and Reagan, was neoliberalism this idea that we want to kind of return to these ancient Greek ideals really and that is that we want to get rid of all these collectivist um, uh, policies get rid of all this banking and business and welfare state as much as possible and turn all of human life into a competition of self against self so that's what Thatcher and Reagan did there's a a really quite chilling interview with Margaret Thatcher that I found in 1981 um, she gave to the Sunday Times and the interviewer said to her, so what's your big, what's your big idea, Maggie Thatcher? What's your, what's your plan? And she said, well, I'm paraphrasing a bit. She said, well, you know, what's annoyed me about all the policies over the last sort of 10, 20 years is they've all been towards the collectivist state. And, she, and then she said something really, really bone chilling. She said, um, the project is economics, but the object is to change the soul. And that's chilling because that's exactly what she did. By changing the rules of how we get along and get ahead, with, but with this kind of neoliberal project, she changed who we are because that's how it works and psychologists hadn't worked out that that's how it works and they wouldn't done for, well, have, uh, they hadn't done at the 80s, they wouldn't do until the 21st century. Um, so what happened? Well um, I'm sure you're all familiar with the story, we had the minor strike over here, the great totemic Battle against the unions, which destroyed the power of the unions in America. They had a very similar um, uh, battle with the Air Traffic Controllers Union, which I didn't know about, which was which was the kind of same idea. Reagan had this big totemic battle about, against the unions in the collectivist era. Economists call that era the Great Compression. By the way, it is the Great Compression because there was um, not a lot of difference between the, to- relatively speaking, between the top earners and the bottom earners. So it's a great compression in earnings, and and all of the regulations that enable that to happen were kind of removed. Um, of course. Removing those regulations from banking ultimately led to the great financial crisis of 2008. So that was a really terrible idea. Um, During the Great Compression years, the top rate of income tax in the United States was 91%. Extraordinary. Uh, So, of course, all that was changed, and and, and we get this great, this kind of new era of of unbelievable competition uh, in the early 80s. And the effect it has on the Western self is really dramatic, and it happens really, really rapidly. So um, one of the kind of more interesting studies I read w- um, was a study of how babies' names have changed throughout the throughout the decades. And what they find, the psychologists, is that in 1982 um, we start changing how we're naming our children. So for decades before that, children would have been called you know Victoria and Margaret and George, you know all those standard names. But in 1982 we started giving our children weird names, like weird spellings, Nick Kershaw, without seeing it. Or like you know, brand new names, because the idea was we wanted our children to stand out and be a star. Um, it, the early eighties was the era of you know the Jane Fonda workout vind- video, which sold millions of copies. It was the Green Goddess, the Keep Fit Revolution, which of course you know, all about looking that Kalahari idea. We've got to look perfect to, uh, in this kind of new competitive world. And again, of course, that's not left us. It's just called wellness now. It's the same. It's the same idea. And if you want to, if you really want to think about how how rapid these changes were, just think about who we were in the kind of 60s and 70s versus who we were in 1985, say. So we'd gone from being these anti-capitalistic, capitalistic, fuck the man hippies to, you know, pinging our red braces down Wall Street going, greed is good. And I know that's a massive generalisation, but, you know, cultural wise in that general way, that, that's what happened. We, it's an enormous revolution in who we were, and it all pins on, the, on, on those decisions made in the late 70s and early 80s to change, to radically change the economy, so radically change the rules by which we um, were to get along and get ahead. So into this kind of new competitive world emerges um, a man I want to spend sort of five or ten minutes talking about, because he re- he re- if there's one person... Who, who, apart from Thatcher and Reagan, um, did more than any to kind of create this slightly narcissistic world we're in right now. It's a man called John Vasconcelos. So John Vasconcelos um, was a Californian politician. And he um, was raised Catholic. So he was raised in a very strict Catholic uh, family. Um, a, a very, a very anti-self-esteem. Very anti-self-glorification. Um, he was always taught in that Catholic way to kind of hate yourself. Um, and then he had a massive nervous breakdown went to Esalen, met Carl Rogers, and became absolutely evangelical about the idea of the human potential movement, because he felt that it had changed his life, you know, like, I've learned, there's nothing wrong with um, uh, self-esteem. In fact, it's the best thing ever. We should love ourselves. The authentic self is just, you know, the ideal we should all be kind of moving towards. Um, And um, so, you know, there was lots of people who thought that, uh, who came out of Esalen, but John Vasconcellos happened to be the second most powerful man in California. He was chairman of the Ways and Means Commission. Um, And he thought, well, you know what, I I know this is true about self-esteem, and I'm in a position of power, so I'm going to... um, I I want to, uh, you know, start having this idea about self-esteem, informing how we're running our schools and our prisons and our institutions, and therefore I can kind of help California. Become better. So he proposed that he would launch a three-year investigation into the kind of the science of self-esteem, and then out of this investigation would come this report, which would hopefully begin to change um, California. And his pitch was this: It was that healthy, healthy self-esteeming citizens are responsible, productive, creative, and satisfied workers who are not absent from the job. They will make. They will make America competitive again. Rings any bells? Moreover. (laughs) That's why he said, just by raising self-esteem you can help solve a massive array of chronic social problems including child abuse, educational failure, teenage pregnancy, that was a big moral panic at the time, alcohol and drug abuse, welfare dependency, crime and violence, um, uh, problems which cost the state of California billions of dollars every year. So that's an amazing thing, he's saying the reason we have all these problems is because people don't love themselves enough. And if you can convince them to love themselves, um, all of these problems will vanish. He called self-esteem a social vaccine. It's literally like a vaccine to make you just believe you're amazing and you'll become amazing. Um, So he promised that he would prove this scientifically. He said in his pitch that there are, that we know scientifically there are causes and effects. If you give people high self-esteem, they get, you know, children in schools, they get better exam results. Um, And then, so when this was announced, he became the object of absolute ridicule (laughs) all over America and the wider world. he became the target of jokes on Johnny Carson uh, on The Tonight Show, were, were, were um, uh, d- teasing him. Um, there was a famous cartoon strip which was syndicated all over America at the time, everybody read it, um, called Doonesbury. And, and, and the guy who uh, made the Doonesbury cartoon um, did a two-week run of cartoons specifically devoted to taking the piss out of the self-esteem task force. He created a new character, Barbara Boopsy Ann Boopstein, a 25-year-old actress and spiritual medium, who channeled a a 213055 year old warrior named Hunkra, who had been invited onto the task force on the basis of her 20 years of feeling good about myself and out-of-body experiences. Um, In in an editorial of the New York Times said, California is a state that produced Jerry Brown, the People's Temple, Sister Boom Boom, whatever that is, drive-in churches, Charles Manson, the Esalen Institute, and now a governmental task force to promote self-esteem. So now there's one more California joke to do that cocktail parties around the nation. And the Wall Street Journal story bore the headline, maybe folks will feel better if they got to split the $735,000, which was the funding for the task force. Vasco was furious about all this. He felt completely humiliated. He felt they were ignorant. And he, de- and he declared publicly that the problem with all these journalists and comedians was they had low self-esteem. <laughs> That's what he said. So he was, he was an absolute object of ridicule. And then, you wouldn't believe it, three years later, the, pu- the report was published and he re- announced that he'd found that it was true he'd recruited um, a team of psychologists and scientists from the University of California system to look into the problem of self-esteem and they had found that it was true that if he raised self-esteem, it did, really did make people happier and more productive and all those amazing things and the journalists were amazed but they accepted it um, uh, Time Magazine had a headline saying the te- the sneers are turning to cheers. Um, it was um, it, it was th- th- this this proof was was reported in the Times in the, uh, in London in Australia. Vasquez was even was even, was even um, invited to the Soviet Union to talk to the Communist Politburo about how to raise their self esteem. Um, uh, they the the, the the task force um, got hold of Oprah Winfrey and sold her the idea of self esteem and she loved it. She uh, decided that self-esteem was going to be, that she called it the catch-all phrase of the 1990s. She had a self-esteem special and the guests were, um, who were the guests? They were Maya Angelou, Drew Barrymore and John Vasconcellos himself. Um, so that, so, so this, this idea became viral, it became absolutely massive and it changed everything. It changed the way we raised our children, it changed the way we taught our children. If anybody here is my age, has got any Gen Xers in the, group, in, in the audience, you will have gone to school in this era in which the most important thing was that you loved yourself. That was the important thing. If you got into trouble, as I was always doing, your problem was that you just didn't have enough self-esteem. That was your problem. Evil people were evil, not because they were evil. Like Hitler was Hitler because he didn't love himself. That was the idea. Amazing. But that was the idea. So I wanted to investigate this as part of my book. So I did some research into this self-esteem movement. And um, part of that research involved looking at the actual report. And there were 25 members of this self-esteem task force. And they all signed the report, except for one man and this one man's name was David shanahoff Kelser, who didn't sign it. So I tracked David shanahoff Kalsa down to his home in Santa Barbara, went to visit him, and uh, he said uh, that um, it was a, all a cover-up, it was all a, basically a massive lie. He said, I was in the room with John Vasconcelos when he got the scientific reports back from the scientists, and he said, in these exact words, if the legislature finds out what's in these reports, they'll cut the funding to the task force, and then it all started getting brushed under the table. So basically, they started lying about all the data. They started lying about all the science. Um, when Carlisle uh, actually pulled out this huge red book, which actually had the actual science in. It wasn't the report, the little thin report they issued to the media. It was the actual science. He read to me their conclusion, and the clu- conclusion is this. The news most consistently reported is that the association between self-esteem and its expected consequences are mixed, insignificant, or absent. They'd made the classic correlation causation error. So they, they'd seen that children at schools, for example, who had high self-esteem had better grades. So, they, so Vasconcellos had, 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 had assumed that the high self-esteem had caused the better grades. And of course, as we know, as we know now, it's the other way around. The, the, the good grades cause the self-esteem. So it was an, or, it was an enormous um, uh, lie. I tracked down at the head of the... the, 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 the um, I uh, uh, tracked down the head of the group of scientists, a guy called um, Neil Smelser, and he said, well, you know, the fact is that Vasco, he, Vasconcellos was um, head of the Ways and Means Committee, which was when he controlled all our funding, he controlled all our money, so it wasn't that he said, either you, f- either you work with us or you, your funding is cut. He, he just sort of suggested it in a, in, a, in a kind of slightly threatening way. He said, wouldn't it be a good idea if the university could devote some of its resources to this problem? And, of course, when they started misrepresenting the science... They didn't feel particularly motivated to stand up and say, no, that's wrong. They just sort of let it happen. Um, he also said the task force would welcome all kinds of good news and either ignore or deny, deny bad news. I found that this was a quasi-religious movement, and that's the sort of thing that happens in those dynamics. And what happened, so, was that, um, and there was, a, there, there was a kind of right-hand man at Vasconcellos High called Andrew Mecca, who was a kind of a politician. Um, and I interviewed Vasconcelos uh, Vasconcellos um, died a few years ago, so I couldn't speak to him, but I did speak to Andrew Mecca, who's completely unapologetic about their, 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 their lying, essentially. And he said, um, what happened was um, they, they got the report and then they, and, and they spent an, an enormous amount of money on PR um, and they went around all the editors of the TV news channels and the magazines and the newspapers selling the idea directly to the editors. He said, um, this is, um, here's a quote, we made the effort to go around to the editorial boards. John and I could spin a pretty good story together. They knew John. They knew his power, and I could add some considerable enthusiasm. And remember, then somebody walks right out of that room and crafts the editorial for next day's paper. That's good spinning. So he was completely, was completely un, uh, unapologetic about, about all this stuff. Um, and it has a terrible effect. So there's a psychologist in America called Professor Jean Twenge, and she's famous for her work, which looks at um, uh, narcissism rates in young people in America. And um, uh, she has found uh, that... Rates of narcissism in young people begin to wobble in the early 90s, which is sort of, '80. I think it was, 89 was when they published the report. And then all through the 90s and right into the 2000s, narcissism in young people goes up and up and up and up and up and up and up. up. So, and that's that's exactly what psychologists find, is if you tell young people, as I was told and my generation were told, um, when they're growing up, you're special, you're amazing, you're wonderful, they become, they can be prone to become narcissistic because, you know, we, we, that's, th- that's the age at which we're building our cultural models of the world. We're finding out, who am I? What kind of person am I? And if our parents and our teachers are all telling us we're wonderful and we're special, it's not going to do us a lot of good. Um, so so, so uh, th- there was a very interesting study that looked at um, the, this kind of behaviour in a very specific way, in the, by, done by the University of Amsterdam. I think it was about 500, 500 families uh, over a two-year span, and they measured rates of what they called... Um, overpraise, parental overpraise they called it, you're amazing, uh, with rates of narcissism in the children, and they, fa- and they tested them every six months, and they found that every six months the narcissism in these young children uh, would go up in these overpraised kind of families. So it's a very kind of powerful idea there, and it seems to, it seems to go with, with kind of where the data goes, um, in terms of uh, how our culture has changed, kind of post-self-esteem movement, and of course that goes into the kind of era of the internet, uh, which is where m- my book self- kind of ends. Um, it, it's really interesting how people think that um, the tech companies invented narcissism and they invented um, how we are and, it's, and, they're, and they're at fault. Uh, I, I'm not going to you know, forgive them completely but, but I think people imbue them with far too much power. Uh, wh- when you look at things like Twitter, selfie cameras, um, it's us as a people who decide how those technologies are used. So, so when Twitter was first launched it was a free SMS Text message service. It was like a Skype for text messages. It was us that decided to turn it into this kind of, quite you know, self aggrandizing kind of platform for kind of tribal warfare and um, uh, kind of me, me, me reporting. Um, uh, the, the selfie camera, when it was launched in the iPhone in 2010, it wasn't called the selfie camera. It was called the front-facing camera, and it was launched as a way of talking to your nan on FaceTime, which is of course Apple's version of Skype. So it was us that decided to turn the selfie camera into the selfie camera and actually just fill our social media platforms with um, uh, pictures of ourselves. You know, Silicon Valley are throwing thousands and thousands and thousands of ideas at us, you know, every month, every week, every month. It's us, only a tiny fraction of those ideas get taken up. And then when they do get taken up, we often change the way that they're used. And so what I think is that kind of the, te- the, the kind of technology sector, the so- especially the social media and kind of mobile phone sector, they didn't create this sort of self-obsessed society that we have s- uh, rather now. They, they, they kind of exposed it. It was us that, you know, picked up this kind of technology and, and, and kind of used it kind of in this way. Um, and, of course, that kind of rewinds to this idea of, tribalism, what you see in the kind of internet culture today is a kind of a weird uh, kind of slightly incredible mix of modern western culture, so you know the neoliberal era is a hyper a hyper individualistic culture, you know we're several decades into it now and it really is, you know it's, it, 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 this sense of There's no safety net anymore. There's no welfare state, you know, the pensions are being eroded further and further. It's almost impossible to get on the property ladder for young people now. So the actually economic environment out there is getting harsher and harsher and harsher as neoliberalism and the anti-regulations ideas that come out of that kind of grip in further and further and further. Um, and, and, it, and it create and it's creating, you know, generations of people. who It's really hard for young people, for especially for millennials and Gen Z. It's getting harder and harder and harder to get along and get ahead because the economy, the neoliberal economy, is gripping further and further into us. Um, so, so that individualism is is always increasing. Um, so, and, and, and of course, you see that all over the internet. You see that in the influ- influencer culture, in kind of YouTube culture. It it it, it it's me. It, there's a lot of me, 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 me now. But it's not a moral failing of any generation. It's just, that's just people being people. It's humans being humans. It's people being born into a particular environment and thinking, who have I got to be to get along and get ahead? What's the ideal of self in this culture? And we see what people become. Um, but within that, uh, you, you, you are kind of overlaid with all that kind of increased me-me-me-ness is, is all those kind of ancient Pleistocene, you know, Stone Age behaviours to do with tribalism, you know, to do with I'm part of this group and I'm attacking that other group and I will not rest until we win. So it's this kind of crazy mix of hyper-individualism and hyper-tribalism which you know, uh, social media platforms and internet culture uh, kind of enable uh, and actualize. and um, that's what we see today so that's it, that, that is in, a, in, in um, nearly an hour, um, the history of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So I think we're going to break for a quick, like, toilet water break, and then we'll kind of come back for questions. So thank you very much. Thank you. So based on patterns of the past, what's the next, what's the next year? <laughs> well, <laughs> this is obviously a bit difficult, but um, I, I do think it's... I think, I think we're in... I think everybody can agree we put, we're, we're in a period of turmoil at the moment, and I think the interesting thing for me is to see that both left and right are attacking neoliberalism in different ways. So if you're a typical left-wing person, your problem with neoliberalism is, 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 is lots of it's about kind of the under-regulation of the banking and business. Um, uh, it, it's about the kind of, you know, gig economy, the kind of unfair ways that businesses exploit um, people. But if you're a typical, uh, kind of classic right-wing person, your problem is, is less about that, because that to you is competition, um uh, and, it, and it's likely to be more about it about issues to do with globalization because globalization is the big neoliberal wet dream the idea that we're going to turn the entire planet into one perfect market and of course that means free movement of people that means immigration so what you see on the right is the brexit trump mindset which is neoliberalism has gone too far globalization has gone too far um we need to build the wall we need to brexit and all that stuff and on the left You've got neoliberalism, neoliberalism has gone too far. We need more regulations on banking and business. We need to protect people. So it's very interesting that, 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 that there seems to be a, even though they come from completely different directions, there, there is a weird kind of consensus between Corbyn and Trump that, 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 that neoliberalism has gone too far. What the answer is, I don't I, I don't know. Uh, you know, where it's going to go, of course, I don't know. But But, but I do th- think that, Th- that indicates that, 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 that there, there is change uh, is going to uh, come. And I also think it's interesting that the, 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 b- the big political shifts, um, you know, the, 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 uh, since d- about 2008, I think, since the global financial crisis, that, you know, we've become a much more politicised society, alt-left and alt-right, the big, you know, the extremes, we've gone to the extremes. And it does seem to me that that kind of begins with the economy going wrong. You know, you have the Occupy movement and then, that, you know, and it's, it's been a kind of an unending an chain of moving apart since then. And so, 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 so I can't prove it, <laughs> but, but, but my suspicion is, because of what we talked about before, about the economy is so important to our national sense of self, when the economies go wrong, bad things happen. We saw it in the Germany in 1930s and so on. And I think, I, I do think that a lot of the problems we've, we've got today have their kind of unconscious roots in the global financial crisis and all the problems that began with that for one at the front oh okay yeah. thank you for that i never i've never quite heard a, a whistle stop of human history done. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question is i know you've written oh, yes. extensively on like the art of literature and how the science of literature and how How is that any different, and how, it, um, how does it transform the understanding of the self and the human condition? Are we meant to see it as a vehicle through which we envisage the worst possible form of ourselves, or is that a little bit too pessimistic? No, well, I think, I th- I, I, I think for me tragedy is about... So all story really is about finding out who we have to be. You know, as, as I said in the, in the talk, we spend those 20 years of our life kind of working out who we have to be, who are good people, who are bad people. And a big part of that is storytelling, like storytelling is a form of play, really, you know, it's how we kind of experiment and we're told stories. Um, and, and, and archetypally, um, your archetypal kind of heroic narrative, um, uh, tells us who we should be courageous, selfless, bold, Stick up for ourselves with other people, but tragedies tell, we, tell us who we shouldn't be. This is what happens if you don't change. This is what happens if you don't, you know, see your flaws and, uh, and kind of fix them. And one of, the, one of the interesting things that I found when I was writing Selfie was that I, I contacted some experts in literature and some psychologists who were experts in literature in East Asia, and particularly a guy called Weechel Kim, who's a professor over in South Korea, to talk to him about differences in... Story forms, East versus West, and how they relate to these ideas of geography of thought. And he said one of the big differences is um, in the quality of the hero. So all over the world, heroes are selfless because that's that tribal um, universal. But the the cultural kind of weirdness that's that, that's over on top of that changes how heroes express themselves. So he told me that in the West especially in ancient Greece, you know, post-Greek literature, heroes are individualistic. We fight monsters and come back the lone hero you know, with all our boons for the community. But he said in East Asia it's much more likely that heroes will sacrifice themselves for the good of the group, for the family, for the king, whoever. So, 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 so yeah, that, that, I think when you, when you look at storytelling, And and the conception of the hero, uh, what what you're always finding are are kind of these moral lessons. It's almost like tribal propaganda, really. It's telling us this is who you've got to be and this is who you shouldn't be. And um, that's why you see these regional differences. And I think tragedy specifically showing us this is who you shouldn't be. Yeah. Trying to figure out where we are and what we're doing. Um, what are your thoughts on these sort of um this sort of appearance of the intellectual dark web like Joe Rogan, John Peterson and, and sort of people like this of starting to go against uh, the grain of what, uh, what's been coming about over uh, the last couple of years or so? Well I um yeah, it's kind of inevitable really. I mean it's it's a, it's a, it's a very complex it's a very complex question in in a way because it's, it's really about, um, how am I going to talk about this? It's really complicated. <laughs> okay, so, so this is the way that I see it, okay? So, so, so um, we are tribal, and, and one of the things that we do as humans is, is that we've broken free of um, being in physical tribes that are in competition, and now we're able to be in psychological tribes. So people are members of all kinds of different psychological tribes at once. I'm white. I'm black. I'm Asian. I'm a woman. I'm a man. I'm, you know, just you know, I'm, a, I'm an employee of this company. I like Starbucks. I hate Costa. You know, we're, we're just unbelievably tribal. We're just members of all these tribes. And when our tribes feel under pressure, um, we become more tribal, and we kind of act, we, that, that kind of tribal identity be- comes to the fore. And I think what you're seeing, at least my, my, my kind of idea of what, we, what what we see in culture, is this constant battle for tribal territory, fought. In a kind of psychological realm, so that's kind of you know it's a battle of ideas, and you know what defines our tribe is our you know one of one of the things that I think is really interesting and explains so much about what goes on the internet and politics and elsewhere is that, it, is that tribal markers aren't just what we wear; they're also what we believe. You know the things that we believe are tribal markers. So I believe this, and people who don't believe this are evil. They're in the other tribe, and 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 and, and this kind of competition for dominance. What you know, what you see on the individual level are these tribal warriors trying to check, trying to convert people, trying to you know, I, I people. I want to kind of evangelize my tribal beliefs and therefore adopt you as a member of my tribe, and and so that, that that plays out on the individual level when people are arguing in pubs. It plays out on the internet. It plays out in politics. It plays out in the media, and, and I think what if you, if you look at it that way, what you can see that what's happened over the since. Financial crisis, at the beginning of the social media age, is that this kind of alt, alt-right ideas have become dominant in politics. Um, so the right are winning politics, Brexit, Trump, but the left are winning culture, the BBC, um, um, university system, and uh, and the kind of new kind of more extreme versions of left and right. So with the intellectual dark web, the way I see that is that, is that because this kind of new kind of alt-left uh, we, you know it's moved away from the center it is now becoming it 's winning it 's winning that cultural tribal battle in the cult, in the media on on the internet too you know like Google and Twitter and Instagram are all very keen to be seen as part of that movement so of course there's going to be people who don't agree with that and 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 there i mean actually I think a lot of the ideas which are called intellectual dark web, they they, they just used to be centrist ideas. Some of them are centre left, some of them are centre right. I don't think they're particularly extreme, but it's all a matter of perspective and where you're starting off from. And I think, you know, they're incredibly popular because they're they're the people who are left behind by this kind of tribal battle for dominance in the kind of cultural sphere. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, Yeah, it does, okay, good. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, around about the same sort of time, we have the emergence of Christianity with Jesus as the ultimate martyr of self sacrifice. Do you feel like that's perhaps, you know, it may be because um, like, a reaction against that, or is it with Jesus being an exercise in covert narcissism, like look how self sacrifice? <laughs> <laughs> He's such a narcissist, Jesus. Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, 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 yeah. I mean, so, you know, I, I think Jesus is, 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 is it's certainly in the UK, it's, it's not, it's always. I mean, it's, it, it, it seems to be a kind of, a, he seems to be a fading figure. Poor old Jesus. At least in the UK, that seems to me. But, but, but it's, but it's, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that that's one of the things that. that the research I did for Selfie kind of threw into relief was that, of course, Christianity is an Eastern idea. So that, that idea that he, that he defined his heroism by his sacrifice is a very Eastern idea and actually did, did knock us into this collective, obedient ki- kind of state. Um, uh, b- but also, one of the things that you see, and it kind of really... When I went to this um, Benedictine monastery um, and lay under my bed, and, and uh, 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 um, over all the beds they've got the crucifix with Jesus, and he had the pelvic V-line, he was so sexy, (laughs) and I just thought, my God, it's so Greek, and you can see how that, you know, how, how Greek ideas were underlaying all those kind of christian ideas but yeah no I, I hadn't really i hadn't really thought about the idea of him as being this covert narcissist before i like the idea <laughs> but, but it's kind of true well but one of the things that i found really interesting and i haven't really got to the bottom of is it's the idea of these cultural leaders because when you look back at our evolutionary history one of the for me the most surprising thing is that they didn't really have leaders of those tribes you, th- you imagine they have this sort of sort of violent alpha male type who might kind of dominate everybody but they were very they weren't egalitarian as such, but they were much, much more egalitarian than human tribes are now, including Christianity. There was no Jesus figure in, it, in, a, in a human hunter-gatherer tribe, and things would be, de- things would be decided among the group. So evolution- evolutionary psychologists call it the tyranny of the cousins. There wasn't a tyrant at the top. There was a group of people who were all deciding what, you know, what we're going to do next. So, so, so Uh, my guess is that is that the idea of leaders which of course we see everywhere from Jesus to Steve Jobs to whoever um, uh, it comes from a much earlier point in our evolutionary history before we were human and when we were still much more apish because in ape of course in ape troops you do see a dominant leader at the top so it's a very vague answer because I don't quite know the answer to the question but those are kind of my rough ideas about about that Yeah. Um, how do you see the sort of individualistic perspective sort of bearing in the longer term, given that we depend on these societies in minutes that only that answer turn like digital society to scale that we do, but no other man has ever had in evolutionary history, so I mean, how is this going to work? Well, I, I think, I, I think so, so so one of the things I was keen not to do in the book was to kind of pick a team because I think that's, it's, it's kind of intellectually dishonest and when you get a massively complex idea, ideas like individualism versus collectivism you can't say which is best, which is the right one and which is the wrong one because it's not, they're, they're so complex and it's, and it's kind of a trade-off and so there are good things about collectivism and there are bad things about, collectiv- about collectivism and there are good things about individualism and there are bad things about individualism and the good thing about individualism is it, is it kind of works with um, you know, individualistic societies and individualistic ideas like capitalism and neoliberalism um, uh, and sort of the market economy, they, they work in concert with pre-existing kind of biological drives in humans. We all want relative status. And what, and what individualism does is, is it says, you're important, and if, you, and if you go on that journey you want to go on anyway, which is to get more and more status, we're going to reward you. And everybody, you know, and society will get, get better because you'll come up with amazing ideas... Um, but um like any idea, it can go too far and so i mean so as a long term strategy i think i, th- I think you know cap- neoliberalism as much as i'm am a critic of it' it's also raised millions of people out of poverty in in in, in developing countries because we've you know because um, uh, b- b- and, and, and that's one of the, sort of the incredible things about kind of globalization so it's an amazing idea, it could be one of the best ideas we've ever had it's the idea that uh, human rights comes out of that, that idea the idea that the individual is more important than the group you know anti-racism and you know not seeing people by the color of their skin, their sexuality, all that stuff comes out of individualism so it's a fantastic idea but like all ideas it can go terribly wrong and I, and I, and I think we're at that point now, I think we're at that point Things like the Grenfell disaster show us we, we're past that point, the global financial crisis shows us that we're past that point. So, so is a, is a, again, it's a complex question uh, and I think it's, you can't answer it. I, I, think, I, I think it's our best chance for a great future, but I think it, it does need to have collective voices thrown into it, to moderate it and to, to make sure that the kind of crazy libertarians don't take over, which might, might, you know, might happen. Mm. They changed their, their concept of what's important to them and meaning, and then the morning mourning on and transcendence. Do you think, uh, have you interviewed people that changed their very self-idea of who they are? What did you learn from speaking to those people? And do we need a new concept of self uh, to survive in, in today's society where the ecological crisis is beyond uh, the selfie sense of self? Um, I've met people who have gone through big changes in self, yes, um, so to me they're really rare people, they're kind of heroes really, the people that have, kind of the, have the kind of courage and bravery to, to kind of really change. Um, um, so I, I have interviewed a few of those people and I did seek them out sp- specifically because they changed and I was to, interested to know how they changed. Um, and so one of these uh, individuals was um, a guy called John Pridmore. And John Pridmore was a gangster, like a proper East End gangster who would walk around, um, he'd go to work with a knee length of the trench coat with a special pocket sewn into it for his machete and another special pocket for his Jif Lemon bottle, which had acid in it, which you'd spray into your eyes. So he was not a good man. And, um, and he, um, he said he nearly killed somebody um, uh, um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and his boss who worked for, he was, a secu- he was a muscle for a firm, a standover man they call him in Australia, I love that phrase. And um, he went home and he smoked um, uh, and he said you need to go for the weekend because you're going to get arrested and sent to prison so stop nearly killing people. Um, and he, and he, um, he, he went home, he s- smoked a, a, a very strong uh, spliff and his television started talking to him and, he, um, and it started listing all the things that he'd done um, and he immediately, in his perception, realised that it was the voice of Satan saying that you're going to go to hell, and he ran outside, fell to his knees, um, prayed for forgiveness, felt the love of the law pouring into him, went round to his mum's house, his mum was a Catholic, and he knocked, it was two in the morning, he knocked on the door, and, and he said, Mum, 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 I found God, and she went, at two o'clock in the morning? <laughs> and now, <laughs> and now John Pridmore is uh, a Catholic Evangelist, evangelical kind of preacher dude who goes around. So, so, so I, I've interviewed a few people like that. So there's him, there's, there's, a, there's a guy called Mark Linus who was um, an eco-terrorist, staged the first, helped organise the May Day riots, um, staged the first ever Monsanto sit-in in the UK and is now a pro-GM foods kind of um, campaigner. Um, I've, and there's a guy who, whose name escapes me who was... Um, a 9/11 truth, and had a big conversion uh, against kind of conspiratorial thinking, and um, what the the thing that connects them all to me is that they have they've all have things in their past um, which are so so so, so the, the the big idea I've been pursuing through all my work really is the idea that the, the self is a story, the brain is a storyteller, it tells a story about who we are and how the world works, and people in my at least in my research the ones that have gone through massive changes are the, are the ones that have latent in them alternative stories that just sort of click in. So Mark Linus, whether well, he was a Zico terrorist and all that stuff, his parents, well, I think his dad was a scientist. So it immediately made sense to him this other scientific idea about GM foods. The 9-11 guy, um, he, um, uh, if, if I can remember properly, he was a scholarship boy at a very posh school who was bullied by the rich, entitled, dominant people and you know when he was looking out at the world and seeing uh, and was kind of um, and, it, and, it, and he also before that lived in Saudi Arabia with his dad who uh, worked for an oil company and was walking through a, a mall one day with his girlfriend holding her hand and they got arrested by the moral police and they called his government a whore and a slag and it was a very upsetting experience for them both. So he had in him, again, both those, the idea of the West of these dominant privileged bullies, but also this idea of people in, in that part of the world being awful and moralistic and anti-Western. So, so he, he had in him kind of these two kind of different latent ideas. So it's just turning to a very long answer. So, so, so that, that's kind of my idea about, that, that, about these rare people who are able to go through these big transformations in perception. They, they're kind of special people because they have very powerful conflicting experiences in, inside them. John Pridmore, by the way, his, was raised Catholic, but never really believed it until, and of course when he heard the television speak to him, he immediately, his, his brain already had an alternative story to explain that situation in his head, which was, oh, it's the devil. Oh, suddenly it made sense. So he had, basically had a nervous breakdown, John Pridmore, as far as I'm concerned, but he, he never went to hospital, he never went to the doctors, because his brain was able to immediately tell a, a make sense story about the world that gave him a function. So, so, so I, I, that's my idea, um, is, is that these people who change are kind of special people because they have unique experiences which enable them just to flip. That, does that make sense? A bit. Hi. <laughs> I, I just wanted to elaborate on that a little bit more. You said that these people um, found the sort of logic mm. that worked for them. Mm. <laughs> um, so, that's a big question. <laughs> okay, yeah, so, 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 so you often hear it said that the self is a story, which sounds like one of those glib, annoying TED talk things that Deepak Chopra might come out with. But it's actually true, and the way to understand that it's true is you flip it and it's actually a story is like a self, so the, the reasons that we tell stories in the way that we do, that are structured, that we, that we, the, 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 in the way that they're structured is because that's how our consciousness works, that's how our kind of psychological self works and it works that way because it wants to, it wants to, um, it, it has to radically simplify reality so we're all surrounded by unbelievably complex, confusing, chaotic information at all times and so the brain is always simplifying, 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 simplifying <laughs> in order to kind of make sense of it all. And it doesn't really care about what's, what's true, it just cares about what, what makes sense in a specific way. And so healthy brains are kind of, I call them hero makers. Their, their kind of primary interest is, is making you feel like it, the heroic self at the center of the world. And, um, and so there are so many kind of biases and prejudices that, that kind of power that delusion. One of the most kind of disturbing ones, they call it depressive realism. And when they, when they um, test, clinically depressed people's views about themselves, about the world in general, about the possibilities for the future, with happy people, they find depressed people are more accurate in their predictions than happy people, which shows that happiness is this kind of delusionary state. And of course it is, you know, we're all gonna die, the world's gonna implode, the sun's gonna explode, and you know, it's not, there's no real reason to get out of bed in the morning, but the brain has to, Give us this story. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. You're going to be amazing. You're going to get out there. You're going to smash it. Your kids are going to be so successful. That's what the brain wants to do. So that's the story it's telling you. And it's t- and again, like everything, it's telling you that it's telling you that to, so you can all the better achieve your Darwinian aim. So you can get up, get out there, survive and procreate. And and, and fe- feeding into that story, of course, is our that awful original sin. That fact that we're tribal and we see the world in groups in competition with other groups. And 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 one of the one of one of the if not the most powerful bias is the moral bias so the brain loves telling us that we're morally good people no matter what we do no matter what we think it finds a way a loyally way of letting us allowing us to believe that we're good people and so that's a really powerful one and 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 again i think that explains so much of what what goes on in the world that we we get confused about we we think we're good The, the the most important thing if we're psychologically healthy and not clinically depressed is that we feel that we're morally good people. Yeah, we make mistakes, we sometimes get things wrong, we have regrets, but ultimately we're good people. And that means that we have to kind of divide the world into kind of heroes and villains. And that's, again, that's another part of that storytelling brain. So, so in short, it's just, it's, just the, it's just the way that we, human beings, you know, attack the world and um, uh, in such a way that we achieve our Darwinian goals, we tell this amazing story about the world. Yeah. That's what we for. Let's give Will a huge wow. Thank you.